This morning we are talking about serving, and I just want to begin by saying I'm very grateful to be at a church where we have so many people who serve regularly, faithfully, uh, sacrificially. It, we, we only have four ministers on staff right now. We're in the process of trying to hire a fifth, but you know we average about 800 people on Sunday morning, so that's one minister per 200 people. That's a pretty wide ratio, and the only way we're able to do that and do everything that we do, uh, which is quite a bit, by the way, is because of you. Uh, you volunteer, you lead, you serve, and so I just want to say, for those of you who are serving, thank you, uh, sincerely. Thank you so much for your service. For those of you who are newer to the church, maybe haven't yet found a place to plug in and serve, now's a great time. Uh, we're kind of starting a new season, a fall semester, and a lot of ministries are kicking off, and it's a great time to get involved and to serve uh, here at Vista Grande. We're going to be encouraged and motivated from God's Word this morning to serve. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. If you would please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I am going to begin reading in verse 32, and this is the very inspired Word of God. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the number of people in Vista Grande who are serving regularly, faithfully, sacrificially. I pray as they hear your word this morning that you would do your work and that you would encourage them and motivate them to keep going, keep being faithful, keep serving. And Father, I pray for those who are newer here, those who have not yet found a place of ministry to serve, that today would be a, a motivation for them from your word by your spirit to find an area, to find a place, to find a, 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 a group, a Sunday school where they can get connected and serve uh, your people and grow in Christ in this way. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I think the main point of this passage is this. Jesus came to serve, to provide an example, and to provide more than an example. And what I want to do is just look at those three statements separately. First of all, Jesus came to serve. Look at verse 32. 
And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. It says they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. When you're in Israel, you always go up to Jerusalem. It's at 2,500 feet above elevation, uh, sea level, and, and everywhere, just about everywhere in Israel is going up. And so they're going up, and uh, verse 32 tells us that his followers are afraid, they're scared, they're amazed. Why? Because they know what Jesus is entering into by going to Jerusalem. They've seen the hostility toward him from the religious leaders, but it's always been away from Jerusalem. And now he's heading right into the middle of the hornet's nest. And they can't believe it. You know, it's like, what are you doing? Why are you going to a place where, you know, this is going to be the end of you because of the hostility? And I just want to point out the irony. I mean, this is the city of God. This is David's city. This is the, the temple. This is Mount Zion. This is, this is God's city. And it's the one place in the world that's the most dangerous for his son. Right? God sends his son, and his son, the most dangerous place for him to go is the city of God. And yet Jesus goes, and he goes resolutely. That's the picture we have here. That's the image. He's marching to Zion. He is, he is resolute. He's not cowering. He's not afraid. And he knows exactly what's going to happen there. This is the third time in Mark's gospel that he gives a very specific prediction of what's about to happen. I'm about to die. And this third prediction is the most specific of them all. Look at the, look at the, uh, the details, the minutia. Verse 33, he says, I know I'm going to be delivered over. He knows he's going to be handed over, delivered over. He even knows who's going to do it. He knows Judas, one of the 12 that he chooses. He knows Judas is going to do it before he chooses Judas to be his disciple. He knows he's going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. He knows he's going to be handed over to the religious leaders. They are the ones who are out to get him. They're the ones who are looking for a way to arrest him, but they don't want to do it in broad daylight with the crowds because Jesus has this big fanfare, and if they do it there, they're going to, it's going to you know, hurt their popularity, their numbers. So they're looking for a way to arrest him at night in private, away from the crowd. How do they do it? They use Judas to lead them to where Jesus will be. Verse 33, they will condemn him to death. The religious leaders will hold a trial. He knows it's going to happen. They're going to hold a trial. The verdict is going to be in before the trial. It's going to be an unjust trial. They're going to find him guilty. They're going to find him guilty of death. But they don't have the authority to execute him. Rome has the authority to execute, so they're going to deliver him over to Rome. Look at verse 33. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles. Jesus knows it's going to happen in the exact order that it happens. And what's Rome going to do? They have the authority to execute. What are they going to do? Verse 34, they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. How does Jesus know these specific details? He's going to be beaten, flogged, spit on. One answer is the Old Testament prophets tell us this is going to happen. I, Psalm 22, Isaiah 50. In the parallel passage in Luke's gospel, Jesus says it like this. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So one way Jesus knows is because the Old Testament says it. But another reason is this is why he came. He came to die in this kind of way. He knows what he's entering into. And he refers to it in verse 38 as his cup and his baptism. These are, uh, look at verse 38 with me. 
Jesus said to them, You do not know what you were asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? These two images of the cup and the baptism are pictures of suffering and death in the Old Testament. The cup is the cup of God's wrath. To drink the cup is to drink the cup of God's wrath. That's why Jesus says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass over me. And as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, we have this image of a cup, right? And and the cup should first of all remind us Jesus drank the cup. And the cup that he drank was the cup of God's wrath. God is pouring out his judgment on his son. And Jesus knows it's going to happen. Jesus knows this when he gives them... When he gives us the Lord's Supper, flip over to Mark 14 with me. Let's read about it. Mark 14, verses 22 through 24. This is the night Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. He's telling them the supper is going to point to what's about to happen. Once again, he knows the detail of what's about to happen. Verse 22, as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Think about that. Jesus is instituting a meal. Guys, I'm about to leave you, but I want you to keep taking this meal, and when you eat this bread and drink this cup, I want you to think about what I'm about to do for you at the cross. I want you to think about my body broken. I want you to think about my blood poured out for you as you take this meal. Jesus is in control. He's going to drink the cup. That's why he's heading to Jerusalem. He's doing this to serve us. And notice the imagery of the baptism. That's kind of interesting. We don't think about this, but the first half of baptism, going in the water, is a picture of death. It's a picture of violence. It's a picture of the chaotic waters of death in the tomb. And when, we go, when we're baptized, we go into the water, first of all, signifying our death. We die. Of course, there's resurrection. There's coming back to life. And Jesus knows that's going to happen. Verse 34, after three days, he says, I will rise. But first of all, Jesus says, I'm going to be baptized. In other words, I'm going to experience a violent death. I'm going to Jerusalem to be put down. So we, we shouldn't think of Jesus as sort of this helpless victim. Like, oh, poor Jesus. He didn't see this coming, and unfortunately this happened to him. That is not the image we get at all. He knows exactly what's coming. He knows exactly what's going to happen down to the minute details. And yet, here he is marching to Zion, leading the pack, resolute. He's on a mission. He's here to accomplish something. And it's the disciples who are standing back saying, what is he doing? Why are you going to Jerusalem? What are you thinking? He's doing this to serve us. He's doing this to suffer in order to serve us. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I think every time we experience suffering, it should cause us to think back and remember how he came to suffer for us. He came to identify with us in our suffering. We have a ministry that we're about to resume in a few weeks Uh, The ministry is called Grief Share. It is for people who have experienced loss of a loved one and they're grieving. And when you get together with other people who have also experienced loss of loved ones and grieving, you can encourage each other and learn from each other. Some people are a little further down the process. Some people are right in the middle of it. It's very fresh. But to hear from each other, talk through it, pray through it, encourage each other, there's something good about that. There's something healthy about that. 
We've had a lot of people who have lost loved ones in our church. We have a lot of people who are losing loved ones. And, uh, and this is a great ministry. It's, we think it's going to start on September 12th. That's kind of the plan. And it's going to start meeting on Sundays at 1 p.m. So the idea is you can come to church, go to eat lunch, and then come back at 1 and, and, and be ministered to by hearing about others who are going through similar things as you. And the reason why I mention this is because just as there's something encouraging about hearing from one another and how we've experienced grief and how we have similarities in that and share in that, it's also encouraging when you experience grief, when you experience suffering, when you experience pain, to think back and remember Jesus also came in order to experience suffering, in order to serve you, in order to identify with you. So whatever you're going through, whatever you're suffering, my encouragement to you this morning is this, don't waste it. Don't let it drive you to bitterness. Instead, let it drive you to Jesus. Are you experiencing, for example, physical pain? Like some of you are in pain this morning. Physical pain. Don't waste that. Let it drive you to Jesus who came to experience physical pain willingly, intentionally, resolutely came to experience physical pain for you. He identified with you. Go to him. Some of you are experiencing injustice. Like you're just being done wrong. There's a lot of injustice in the world, right? And you're, you're, you're experiencing it and it's making you angry. And, and in some senses, justifiably so. But here's my encouragement. Don't let it drive you to bitterness. Let it drive you to Jesus who also experienced injustice the greatest injustice ever done, and he came willingly to experience that for you. So don't waste that opportunity to go to him and identify with him in that. Are you experiencing betrayal? A close friend betrayed you. A family member betrayed you. People you love betrayed you. They weren't for you what you need them to be. Guess what? Jesus was betrayed by his friends, his loved ones, his family, the people he came to save, and yet he kept heading to Jerusalem. He kept heading to the cross to suffer for you. So don't waste it, right? Don't waste that opportunity. Are you experiencing death? Are you experiencing the death of a loved one? Have you recently lost a loved one? Has the doctor given you a, a, a difficult diagnosis that you might lose a loved one? Guess what? Jesus knows about death. He lost loved ones. He wept at the loss of loved ones. And he himself experienced death. And yet he kept heading to Calvary. He kept heading to the cross. Right? So, so don't waste the opportunity. Don't waste your suffering. Let it drive you to Jesus. Jesus came to suffer. He came to serve you in his suffering. Second, Jesus came to serve in order to provide an example for us to follow. As I mentioned earlier, this is the third time that Jesus has predicted his upcoming suffering and death. And every time, if you go back and notice, every time Jesus makes this prediction, I'm about to suffer, it always leads to the disciples getting into an argument. It always leads to mo emotions. And it always leads to kind of arguing. And Jesus always has to kind of correct them and rein them back then and teach them. And so it's no coincidence that starting in verse 35, there's this discussion about who gets to sit at Jesus' right and left hand, and it comes right on the heels of Jesus saying, I came to suffer. 
So think about how Mark puts this together. Jesus says, I came to suffer. I came to serve you by suffering. And it immediately leads to an argument among the disciples. Who gets to be greatest? Who gets to sit at the right hand and the left hand and call the shots? Right? And now Jesus uses this as a teaching opportunity. And he says, guys, you can't have that mentality if you're going to be one of mine. You can't have the mentality, who gets to bark orders? You know, what's the pecking order? The command, the order, the order of command. That, that, that's not the kind of issue that, could cons- that should consume you. Follow my example. Follow me. Look at me. Verse 39. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. In other words, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, there's a cup for you too. If you're going to follow me, there's a baptism for you too. Now, it's not the exact same one as Jesus. His cup and his baptism provided salvation for the many, right? And so we don't drink the cup and we're not baptized in the exact same way that Jesus was because ours doesn't accomplish salvation for the many. But nevertheless, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. It's going to involve sacrifice. Last week we saw the rich young ruler said, no thanks. Like, I'm not interested. I'd rather keep my wealth. I'd rather keep my money. Thanks, but no thanks. And the disciples are, are going to eventually get it. They're going to learn. They're going to they're take up their cross and follow him. But they're first going to have to see the example. The example of Jesus is what's going to compel them to do this. But right now, at this stage of the drama, they still got a lot to learn. They still got to learn from the example of Jesus. And we know that because look at how they respond when they find out that James and John went secretly and asked to serve as number one and number two. Look at how the other disciples respond. Look at verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. The other disciples are angry, very angry. Why? Because these two went and jockeyed behind our backs for a position higher than us. See, they're not disappointed with James and John. They're angry that they didn't think about it first. You know, these guys thought about it and they went and asked to be number one and two. What about us? We want to be one and two. Why should they be one and two? Right? We, we want to be there. And the disciples are angry. And Jesus says, perfect teaching opportunity, guys. Let, let, me, let me teach you something. Tap into that anger. Think about why you're so angry right now. Let me teach you something. Verse 42, Jesus called them to him and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, he says, guys, you're operating the way the world thinks. You're thinking like Gentiles. Gentiles are concerned with questions like, who gets to be in charge? Who gets to bark the orders? Who gets to tell everybody else what to do? That's the way the world operates. That's the way the world thinks. That's the way Romans operate. Jesus says, do you see me doing that? Like, I'm the king of kings and lord of lords, and here I am among you as a servant. I'm not coming down here barking orders. Why in the world would you think that should consume you? In fact, Jesus says, verse 40, you know, it's not my place to decide who sits in what position. That's the Father's. Jesus himself is submitting to the Father. We see his humility. Jesus says, guys, this is not how things work in my kingdom. You need to learn the lesson. It's a hard lesson. Because it goes against everything inside of Everything inside of us says, I want to be at the front. I want to be the one barking the orders. I want to be the one getting to tell everybody what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. And Jesus says, you're not thinking like the kingdom of God. 
is thinking like the kingdom of man. Look at verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. He says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you've got to become like a servant. You've got to become like a slave. And that raises the question, in, in what sense am I supposed to be a servant? In what sense am I supposed to be a slave? And the answer is, I'm supposed to be a servant or a slave in the sense that I look out for others' needs before mine. That's what a servant does. That's what a slave is supposed to do. You look out for the needs and interests of others. I exist for you. I'm here to serve you. Right? I, I get the sense when my family goes out to eat at a restaurant, we, we t I think we're a little bit high maintenance. We're a little bit on the high maintenance side. There's six of us, four kids. Sometimes we leave a decent mess behind. Sometimes it's on the floor. We often try to help them out in cleaning that up before we leave. But our family also has this thing about sauces. We really like sauces. We like ranch. We really like ketchup, and it's got to be the certain kind of ketchup. Like, we don't like the generic off-brand ketchup. We're very snobbish about this. <laughs> and we like to mix our sauces, and we eat a lot of it. Like, at our house, you know, we fight over things like Chick-fil-A sauce, and <laughs> we hide Chick-fil-A sauce. Like, if somebody comes home with extra, they'll hide it in the refrigerator. <laughs> And then pull it out, and there I say, where did that come from? Oh, I just found it in the refrigerator somewhere. But uh, we usually try to kind of give our waiters and waitresses a heads up. Like, we really like ranch, and we really like ketchup. And they'll, oh, okay, and they'll usually bring like a little cup of it, you know. And that's enough for us for like three french fries. And so we'll try to, we try to give them a heads up. Like, we really like this. And so please bring a lot. And some of the waiters and some of the waitresses are just great about this. They're like, oh, sure, no problem. And they're anticipating and they're, you know, filling up the glass of the water before we even get to the end. And they, they're like, oh, it's not a problem at all. That's wonderful. You know, and they're just you know, keep placing ranch and ketchup in front of us. And, and it's just a great experience. Every once in a while, we'll have a waiter or waitress that you can tell is just kind of like, you know, we're just ready to get rid of you guys, you know. Like, when are y'all going to be done here? You know, let's wrap this up. And, and by the way, we usually tip appropriately, right? Depending on how they respond. But there's some waiters, some waitresses who are truly, you can tell. They're like, I'm here for you. How can we serve you? How can we make this a good experience for you? And there's some waiters and some waitresses that's like, you can tell. They're like, we're just kind of ready to get you out of here. And you even hate to even ask them for anything. You know, it's like I'm hesitant to even ask for the check because I get the sense I'm bothering you. And usually they're overwhelmed, and, and that's understandable. But here's the point. You and I are called to be servants. Jesus says, you're a follower of me, you're a waiter. You're a follower of me, you're a servant. You're a follower of me, you're a slave. So if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, Jesus says you are a waiter. And my question for you is this, which of the two types of waiters are you? Are you the waiter that's looking out for the needs of others? Like, how can I help you? How can I meet your need before you even ask me for it? Oh, it's no problem at all. I'm glad to serve you in this way. How can I serve you more? Are you that kind of waiter? Are you the kind of waiter that's like, I'll do it, but my goodness, you better remember this when I have a need. Right? And I'm just kind of you know, counting the time before I can be done with you so I don't have to deal with you anymore. See, which, which waiter are you? Are you following the example of Jesus? 
Because look at what Jesus says. Look at verse 45. He says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. This is what is called an argument from greater to lesser. He says, I am the Son of Man. I'm the King of Kings. I am your Creator, and I came to serve you. That should blow our minds. What? God is getting down on his hands and knees and washing my feet? God is going to a cross to lay down his life for me? Why would he serve me? He doesn't need me. I can't scratch his back in return. Why is he serving me? It should absolutely blow our minds that the Son of Man would come not to be served like every other king comes to be served. This is the one king who comes to serve instead of be served. And now he says, okay, are you going to be a follower of mine? Are you going to take up your cross and follow me? Well, if you're going to be a follower of mine, wouldn't it make sense that you also would be a servant? You also would have a waiter mentality? Like, if I'm God and I serve, you're not God, you're not better than others. How much more so would it make sense that you would get down on your hands and knees and serve God's people and meet needs? How could you not? How could you possibly call yourself a follower of the King of Kings who came not to be served but to serve and not be a person who serves? Follow the example of Jesus. This is a key principle in the Christian life. Do you want to be great in the kingdom? Follow the example of Jesus. I want to point out how I think we, most of us do this with our children. We serve our children. We meet their needs. We do it from day one. They're babies. They're infants. They need us for everything. And we meet all their needs. It doesn't matter how tired we are. It doesn't matter if it's three in the morning. If they wake up crying, hungry, hot, cold, we, we give everything for, for our kids. And do we get any thanks in return from them? And usually not until, I don't know, maybe still waiting, 18, 19, 20, <laughs> right? Like, but for sure a three-month-old isn't saying, thanks, Dad, thanks, Mom, for waking up at 3 a.m. and feeding me. Thank you. You don't get any kind of thanks. In fact, all you get is more screaming and crying, right? You didn't do it good enough. I'm still hot. I'm still cold. I'm still hungry. And you're just trying to troubleshoot. Like, and all you do is just keep giving, and somehow, in that process of you giving and not getting anything in return, guess what happens? You develop this incredible love for this child. And you're like, this is like the, one of the most important things in my life. And I'll give, I'll give my life for this child who's never said thanks, you know? And all that has happened is when I've given and served has just complained more. And somehow my heart just keeps being affectionate for them. How, how does that work? The answer is God wires us that way. When you give and serve and you love someone the way the Bible defines love, which is giving yourself sacrificially to them, guess what happens? Your heart follows. You can't help it. Your heart follows where you invest your time, your energy, your resources, your money. If you invest in a person, whether they reciprocate or not, thank you or not, are grateful or not, you invest in them, you'll develop a love for them. And I think for most of us, children is exhibit A. But that same principle applies across the rest of life. Like, for example, try it in your marriage. It's no coincidence. Paul begins his chapter 5, you know, about marriage, and he begins to submit to one another. 
What does that mean? Look out for one another's needs. And then he talks about husbands and wives. And he says, husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He literally gave his life for her when she wasn't reciprocating at all. The church was unlovable. The church was full of sin. And what did Christ do? He loved her. He bled for her. He got down on his hands and knees and washed her. Why? To earn her, her affection so that she might love him and he might present her one day glorious. So what's the principle? The principle is husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. Like she's not thanking you. She's not reciprocating. She's not showing you the same kind. That's not, that's not the qualification. It's not like you love her as long as she's loving you in return. You love her. And, and, and see if your heart doesn't follow the affections. And see if you don't win her back and win her heart back. Or wives, some of your husbands. You're like, I just want him to love me. I want him to love me the way I want to be loved. I want him to love me the way I need to be loved. And he's not. What do you do? Well, I think the Bible would say, you just keep loving him. Serve him, love him. And C, A, if your heart doesn't follow, and B, if you don't win him back and win his affections back. Try it in your marriage. Do you want to be loved in your marriage? The kingdom principle here is you serve her. You serve him. You meet his needs. You be more concerned, what does he need, what does she need, than what do I need? And C, C, test it, see, if, see what happens. I want to point this same principle out in our relationships in our church. Hopefully you have relationships in our church. How does that happen? It's not just going to happen on Sunday mornings as you come and go in the hallways. It's got to happen by you getting involved and connected in a smaller group. Typically at our church, it's Sunday schools. You get connected with a Sunday school. But you've got to have the mentality of like, I'm here to serve you. I want to be here to help you. I want to be here to bless you. I'm involved in this ministry to bless you. If you come in with the mentality, it's about me and how can I get blessed and how can I get served and how is this ministry going to meet my needs, it's just going to be a matter of time before you're out of here because somebody's going to say something or do something or your need's not going to get met the way you perceive it to need to be met. And you're like, I'm done. I'll find somebody else to scratch the edge until it doesn't. But if you go in with the mindset that says, I'm not here for me primarily, I'm here for you. I'm here to serve you. Jesus Christ served me. I'm here to serve you. Where are the needs? How can I meet them? Even if nobody thanks me. Even if nobody gets up on a stage and says, look at all that he's doing. Look at all that she's doing. I'm just going to serve. And even if there's no reciprocation and even if there's no thanks, I'm just going to keep giving the way Jesus gave for me. Try it and see if your heart doesn't follow. See if you don't develop an affection for God's people. And see if it doesn't have an impact on others to want to reciprocate and develop a spirit, a culture of serving like Jesus. What if everybody had that mentality? What if everybody in your Sunday school class had the mentality, it's not about me, I'm not here for me, I'm here for you. What if everybody had the mentality, I'm here for you? That would be an incredible Sunday school class, right? By the way, I'd love to join that one, right? Uh, or just in our church? What if everybody in our church, like every ministry, every committee, whatever, everybody was driven by this question, how can I be here to serve you? It would be an absolutely dynamic picture of the gospel. And we do it because we're just following the example of Jesus. Like this is not 
you know, a novel idea, right? It's just basic biblical Christianity. We're just following the example of Jesus. So Jesus came to serve in order to provide an example for us to follow. But third, he came to provide more than an example. Let me explain what I mean by this. In verse 35, James and John come to Jesus and they say, we have a request, but we'd like for you to say yes before we ask our request. And my kids do this to me pretty frequently. Like, Dad, I got to ask a question, but just say yes before I ask you, right? I don't think so. What, what is the upside to that? And Jesus similarly says, just tell me what, you're, what you want. And they said, when you come in your glory, we, please let us sit one at your right hand, one at your left hand. In other words, we want to be, you're number one, we want to be two and three, right? So we don't care who's two or three, just one of us, two or three. And Jesus says, guys, you have no idea what you're asking for. See, in their minds, they're thinking the tension's ratcheting up. He's heading to Jerusalem. This is the city of God. Something's about to happen. They can feel it. There's a spirit in the air, like something's about to happen. And in their minds, you know, they're like, I don't know about all this suffering stuff and dying, but he's about to sit on the throne of David. Like, he's about to rule. It's about to happen. So now's our time. Let's get in there and ask if we can be number two and three. And Jesus says, you guys are clueless. Yes, I'm heading to Jerusalem, and yes, I'm going to experience glory, but it's not the glory of sitting on a throne. It's the glory of hanging on a cross. And the person who's going to be on my right and my left are going to be two criminals who are going to be crucified along with me. So you don't know what you're asking. I'm here to serve, to, to give you an example to follow, but I'm here to do more than just give you an example. Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve us by giving his life. By giving his life as a ransom. What does that word mean? It means it's a payment that's made to free someone. In the ancient world, it was used of slaves. You could purchase a slave. You could purchase their freedom. You could ransom them, redeem them, free them. Jesus says, I'm here to free you. And I'm going to free you by serving you. I'm going to free you by suffering for you. I'm going to free you by giving my life for you. What is he freeing us from? What are we enslaved to? The answer is we're enslaved to sin. And Jesus says, I love you so much, I'm here to free you from your bondage to sin. The rich young ruler was unwilling. Jesus tried to open his eyes. You're in bondage to sin. You love your money more than you love God. I'm here to love you enough to tell you that. And the rich young ruler said, no thanks. And Jesus said, okay, and he sent him away. Right? Jesus wants you to recognize your enslavement to your sin. And he's here to free you. And the way he frees you is by offering his life as a ransom, a payment for you. See, you deserve to pay the payment. What's the payment? It's death. We're under a death penalty because of our sin. Our sin leads to our death. Our sin leads to our condemnation. We're under God's judgment and wrath. But Jesus, this is the incredible part of the gospel. This is the incredible part of the Christian faith. Jesus goes to the cross to experience the condemnation, the wrath, the cup of God's judgment that we deserve and he experiences it for us so we might not have to. That's how he ransoms us with his life. Isaiah 53, 6 says it like this. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're like sheep, going our own way, lost. If we remain in that condition, we will remain lost, dead. 
But God provided a way to bring us back and restore us, forgive us of our sins. How? Because the Lord has laid on Him, the Lord God has laid on Him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all, our iniquity, our sin, our punishment, the consequence, the wrath of God, which was against us, was set against the Son. By His wounds, we are healed. So perhaps this morning, you feel some guilt. You realize, well, I've really not lived like this. I've really lived for myself. I've not lived for others. I've lived a life for myself, to please myself. I'm number one. Serve me. And maybe this morning you realize that, and maybe you're experiencing a little guilt. Guess what? Don't miss the main point of the passage. What's the main point? Jesus came to ransom you, to pay your debt in full so you can be forgiven of that life of sin. Some of you are saying, I, 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 liked, I want to live as, like this where I serve my children and I serve my spouse and I serve the church. I want to live like that. I want to follow the example of Jesus, but boy, I come up short a lot. Jesus didn't set the example because he expects us to follow it perfectly. We don't, we can't. None of us has, none of us will. So don't miss the main point of the passage. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for your inability to follow his example perfectly. So go to Christ and know that your debt is paid in full. And some of you today, perhaps for the first time, realize you need to be served by Jesus. Maybe for the first time you realize your sin, your debt, you're enslaved. You've got to recognize that. Jesus loves you enough to say, you've got to recognize you're enslaved to your own sin. Maybe today for the first time you realize that and you realize Jesus has paid the debt. He took the penalty so you don't have to. By his wounds you are healed. The Lord has laid on him your iniquity. All you have to do is look to Jesus and believe him and trust him for that. And you can be washed white as snow, forgiven of your sin, set free from your slavery to sin, restored to God, made right, purpose in life, eternal life in heaven, all of the benefits because Jesus paid the debt in full. This morning, this meal that we take is a reminder to us Jesus has paid the debt in full. He gave us this meal. On the night that he gave it to us, he told us what was going to happen. It didn't shock him. It didn't come as a surprise. He entered into it resolutely. That's why he said, when you take the bread, I want you to think about my body broken for you. When you take the cup, I want you to think about my blood poured out for you. So as we take this meal, we are saying we need the broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus for our ransom. By taking the meal, we are saying we are slaves to sin and our only hope and our only rescue is Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection. And by taking this meal, we are saying we are followers of Jesus. What does it mean to be a follower? It means just like He came, not to be served, but to serve, so we will follow Him by serving, by having a waiter type of mentality. I'm not here for me, I'm here for you. How can I serve you? For these reasons, we ask that only believers in Jesus Christ who are in right standing, good standing with the New Testament church take this meal. If you're not trusting in Christ for your salvation, if you're not in good standing with the New Testament church, we would ask you to not take this meal and instead examine and ask yourself why. Why are you not trusting in Christ? Why are you not in good standing with the New Testament church? This is a meal that's for believers. And so for that reason, we want to give you a few minutes to pause, examine, confess, repent, prepare, and make sure you can take this meal in a manner that's worthy. So uh, if you haven't yet gotten an element, they are at the back of the room. Uh, you can get one. I'm going to ask everyone else if they'll bow their heads, close their eyes, and then in a couple of minutes, 
after silence, I will lead us in prayer and lead us from there.